0: Well, let's take these themes that we've been singing and carry them over into our study from Acts chapter 4 this morning. The church's boldness must be anchored in the sovereignty of God. This has two main thoughts. The church must be bold and God apparently is sovereign. The church's boldness must be anchored in the sovereignty of God. So first, we must be bold. We see that in the text. The church speaks in the name of Jesus. The religious leaders try to shut that down. And several times, we see that boldness is the great need of this fledgling church. So when you sift the whole narrative down looking for that big idea It seems that the big idea is we must be bold as Christians. And that must be bold is compelling. In other words, boldness is not presented as an option for Christians. Some days I'm bold and others I'm not. That's not an option. Boldness is the must. Boldness is not only for those with certain personalities. You're a people person, or you're an outgoing person. Well, that may be so, but there's nothing in the text about personality types, only about Christian types. Boldness in our text is not connected with a certain spiritual gift. You don't need to be a prophet or an evangelist or any other label that could be given to you You simply need to come to God's word and realize from the beginning of our study in Acts that you have received power from the Holy Spirit in you to be a witness. It is essentially what you are. And to be anything less than articulate, clear, and bold in your witness is to sin against God's very call on your life. The church must be bold. But two questions logically emerge from this mandate of boldness. One, why aren't we bold? Why do we even talk about boldness? If it's just a given, we'll receive power and we'll be witnesses. Why are we talking about this need for boldness? Frankly, I think you can answer the question. There are times we don't want to be viewed as narrow-minded, as old-fashioned. We don't want to be associated, perhaps, with some kind of hateful group that calls itself Christian and stands for the same truth we stand for, so we just kind of shut down. We want to avoid that association. Maybe you say, "I I just don't deal well with tension or conflict At times, we have to admit we're just not ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Our heart's not full of that joy, so when someone asks us for the reason for our hope, we're not really giving much thought to the riches of Christ that are ours. There's some that may be sitting here that say, you know, I'm, barely half listening because boldness is not an issue for me. And maybe you speak often and freely of Christ and you're ready to dive in or maybe you're at least learning it and and it, and it seems to be working. You're understanding what boldness means and what it can do. But I think a lot of times we aren't bold because there's some kind of opposition that seems intimidating or it seems aggressive or it seems like it's the majority, it's growing, and we kind of just shrink back to our kind of safe place. After all, I know what the Bible says, and and I know it's well with my soul, and I can worship the Lord. And that's all true. But you would be disobedient not to use the power of the Spirit to witness to Jesus and his life-transforming power. The second question is, how can we be bold when we face opposing worldviews that seem so big? How can we be bold? Because I think we'd have to admit, this, this would not be the first sermon you've ever heard that addressed some kind of boldness in your Christian life or your Christian witness. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we hear a message about boldness. We see them pray for boldness. God shakes the place. They continue to speak with boldness. And then we come face to face with question number one why am I not bold? And we can answer it begrudgingly. Well, because everything out there seems kind of scary. And I don't like having to kind of defend my belief against everyone else, we're intimidated. So what is the answer to that intimidation? Where does boldness come from? I would venture to say you've tried to be bold before. Like, okay, he said we're supposed to be bold. I'm going to try to go out and be bold. But you go back to the same workplace that you went to last week and you're thinking, I don't know how to do this. They're all promoting their ideas, what they think is normal or right or acceptable. And I don't feel like I have the same place to speak freely. Where does the boldness come from? Maybe we just need to recognize it doesn't come from you. You might be right. You're not a people person. You may be right, evangelism isn't your gift. You might be right, your personality type is a little bit more reclusive. That may all be true. So we're going to have to find some other power source than self-confidence to plug into in order to be obedient to God's word this week. How can we be bold when the opposing worldviews seem so big and so loud? I think the answer is by believing that God is bigger. And that in a sense the gospel is louder. God is bigger. I think you get that, but admittedly the word bigger lacks theological nuance. You don't find that in systematic theology. But you learned it as a young child, right? My God is so, well, he's transcendent, of course. That's how we taught our children. My God is so transcendent, right? No. We just say my God is so big. And the idea is you can teach the smallest child who's afraid of the kid at school or afraid of getting on the school bus or afraid of whatever, that though that problem seems big to them, that God is bigger. Well, let's face it, as adults, we just learned this simple lesson of, sure, recognize your problems, your hardships, the opposition, the worldviews we're facing that seem to be taking over politics, courts, legislatures. The opposition seems big. Our hope for for boldness is simply to come back to that childlike faith and believe, okay, okay. My God is bigger. Why do the nations rage? Why do these movements think they're so successful? When our God in the heavens will laugh at their projected outcomes and and their schemes to take over, he is not intimidated by the darkness, by the anti God spirit of the age. So taking clues from our text, let's use a more precise word than just our God is bigger. And let's say that our God is sovereign. And therefore the church's boldness need not be mustered up as some strict act of obedience. But it, it should naturally flow out of our understanding that my God is so big so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. So now we look at our text and ask this question, how is the sovereignty of God revealed in this passage about this fledgling church facing persecution and longing to continue their bold witness? And really, I think the whole story is about the sovereignty of God. And so I'm going to just highlight seven indications, seven parts of this text that are saying, look, God is sovereign. So if you want to get to the big conclusion, boldness in your Christian faith, then follow these indications back to that foundation, to that power source of boldness, the sovereignty of God. Number one, we see God's sovereignty is revealed in the authority of the master over the servant. Master over servant. You could think the highest ranking boss in your company over you, if you're not that boss. And you have an idea here. You understand this rank, this authority structure. Where is it in our text? Well, Peter's released... He goes back to his friends, we're told, and reports this whole scenario. And they immediately turn to God in this address, Sovereign Lord. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I think one could argue that's exactly what they're doing. If we understood our Father in heaven, whose name is set apart, then I think we could understand this is simply nuancing that name. It's an interesting title, though. If we would translate these two words, which is really just one in the Greek, it would just be the word despot, which is generally a negative kind of thought in our mind. You know, we think of some African country or some South American country with some dictator or despot who uses his authority to abuse his nation for his own good. Well, fair enough, but the word despot just pictures for us this authority over someone else because they're a greater rank or voice of authority. That word despot, though, is teaching us something. It's it's well translated here as sovereign Lord. You're over everything. And I think it's interesting that this meaning of his sovereignty over everything unfolds in the use of the word servant in this very passage. Right away, in verse 25, they pray, through the mouth of our father David, your servant. They've just said in prayer, O master over all servants, O sovereign Lord, And now right away, they're going to quote David, but they call him a servant. Great King David, but servant to the Most High. They're going to reference Jesus in this prayer. Verse 27. The religious leaders in the city were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Isaiah makes it clear that the Messiah would be this suffering servant, and here in their prayer, instead of just addressing Jesus, they call him a servant. Why? Because this prayer is addressed to the master over all servants. Jesus has that same title referenced in verse 30. So David is a servant of the sovereign Lord. Jesus, in his incarnate plan of accomplishing redemption, is a servant. And then we see in verse 30, 29, that they include themselves in this category of servant of the sovereign Lord. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. So four times in this prayer addressed to a sovereign master, they reference servants, what is helping us understand is that we will struggle with our boldness. That's where we're aiming for in this text, be bold. But we will struggle with boldness if we fail to see ourselves as servants of the master. He's told us to do this. Go and make my name known to the ends of the earth. Tell them what you've seen. Tell it everywhere you go. Well, what's the problem? The religious leaders are now saying, Don't talk about that. But Jesus has already said, Talk about this everywhere. Where does boldness come in? When we recognize, when they're telling me, Don't talk about this, they have no authority over the one who told me to talk about this. Who will I choose to serve? And when I see myself as the servant of the sovereign Lord and Master, boldness begins to grow. Because I'm just carrying out my duty. I'm just doing what I was made to do, called to do, commissioned to do. If you struggle with boldness, I would question whether you've really found your place in true humility as a servant Of the Most High God. Number two, God's sovereignty is revealed in His creation of all things. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When I first started reading through this text, the question popped into my mind, and and my questions are not always wise. (laughs) Why are they talking about creation? do we really need Ken Ham to instruct us on seven literal days or other creation arguments when I thought the problem was we're, we have this crisis of all these worldviews assaulting the Christian faith. Why do they pray sovereign Lord and then go on this little exercise of rehearsing that he's the creator of all things? It must be there for a helpful reason to steer us toward this end of being bold. And then I realized the question really isn't that complicated. Think of it this way Everyone that you could possibly be afraid of was made by God and he rules over them. Sovereign Lord who made everything, everything that exists was made by God and he rules over it. So if anything in that everything is causing you problems, guess who's in charge of it? The sovereign Lord. I submit to you that you will be bold when you remember that it's your creator that is calling you to make him known and that the opposition you face in doing so is merely clay in the potter's hand. Do you think our politicians or some dictator in this world is actually a stone that God has no power to manipulate or control? Oh, most of the king's hearts are in the hand of the Lord. But have you seen what our nation's leaders are doing? No, that's foolishness. We see it in Scripture, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants to. But do we really believe that when we're watching the news and kind of grumbling to ourselves about how this is out of control and what's going on? I think you'll be more bold when you remember that those who are opposing you are clay in the potter's hand. He is doing whatever he wants with them. Sovereign Lord who made everything. These are foundational truths that will lend themselves to boldness, resting in the sovereignty of God. In the next verses, we further see God's sovereignty revealed in this quotation from Psalm 2, which we read together earlier. Here we see that God's sovereignty is revealed in his rule of rebel nations. Why do you rage against God, nations? We could fill in names from modern history. Some of you remember Fidel Castro. Why why would you rage against what is true and right? Putin, why do you rage against God as if you are some kind of sovereign Lord? President Biden or any other president who's ever been or will be, why would you exalt yourself against the authority of God? And so the psalm warns them, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Boldness will grow as you realize that evil is raging ultimately against God. Against you by association, but against God. Jesus said, the world hated me, it will certainly hate you. But the target of their hatred is the light. And the more you shine that light, the greater opposition you may face. So where does the boldness come from? It comes when we rest in God's sovereignty. That whatever group, whatever political influence, whatever cultural voice, whatever national law would stand in opposition to the proclamation of Christ, it doesn't matter. Christ rules over those rebel nations. Christ ruled over Rome as it executed Christians by the thousands. That may trouble us, but I would submit to you, it did not trouble them. Read what the martyrs would say as they went to their death. They were at perfect peace in the sovereignty of God over such evil. We want to go back and slander them by saying, oh, I just don't know what God was doing there. What makes you think you have to know? Believe that Psalm 2 is true and God rules over the nations. Be done with stewing about American politics. Submit it to Psalm 2. You say, what does that look like? Believe that Christ rules over the nations. And believe that he's called you to be salt and light in this particular nation. And get out there and vote and run for office. And pray and protest and speak and do everything we can do. But don't do it out of panic or uncertainty. Do it as salt and light. Confident that Jesus rules over rebel nations. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Don't you say, except for. Don't do that in the way that we think and fear. Verse 28 adds some theological nuance to the raging of the nations. Look at it. Having said that these nations gathered against the holy servant Jesus... It says they gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's quite a paradox in one verse. Those who gathered against Jesus did something. They gathered to do, and we know what it was. We've read the gospel accounts, the trial, the torture, the execution. We know what they did. But our text is clear. Though that sounds daunting, though that sounds intimidating, though that looks like a pretty formidable foe we're up against, see how it really unfolds. They gathered to do whatever your hand, sovereign Lord, and your plan predestined to take place. Here's what we learn. God's sovereignty is revealed in the death of Christ in the plan of God. It was God's plan. Remember, before the foundation of the world that a lamb would be slain. (sighs) But that plan was carried out by the hands of sinful men. Peter has made that clear in multiple sermons already in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. Take the worst that man can do, kill the very author of life, the light of the world, and it is still swallowed up by the infinitely wise, all powerful plan of God. God didn't regroup after Calvary and figure out a resurrection. No, Calvary also was the predetermined plan for the salvation which you and I have celebrated this morning. So let us be bold in our testimony of God's saving grace, believing that his plan for your life will not be thwarted by someone who doesn't like your gospel message. Be bold. God is sovereign in this very message we have of a crucified Christ. As the story continues, we see number five, God's sovereignty is revealed in the boldness of the church to speak truth. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I think this is an interesting contrast The first request is look on their threats. Look on their threats, but but they don't really follow through with that thought. In my mind, again, my questions were, did they want God to do something about those threats? Did they want those threats to go away? I'm sure they would pray like something like Paul told Timothy, pray for those who are in authority so that you can live peaceably in the faith but they they just don't go down that path. We don't know what all they meant when they prayed, look on their threats. It seems their prayer is not focused on what God might do about the threats, but rather what they must do in the face of the threats. Where do we spend more of our time? I lack boldness. I'm threatened in my Christianity, so I'm going to just pray that God will take away the threats and will make it really easy for me to live my Christian life. I'm reminded of the old invitation song Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? We need to be careful that we don't hide behind our cowardice by praying for some kind of religious freedom so that Christianity would be easy. That would be a pretty localized kind of answer to prayer and blessing. Frankly, we could argue God has given us that for 200 years. And here's what it's led us to. Easy Christianity is not always healthy, successful, vibrant, bold Christianity. So be careful in our praying, that we don't neglect to pray for boldness in the face of persecution. Some of you may follow Voice of the Martyrs and get their magazine. They often list prayer requests, and what you will never find on the list is that persecution would end. They are articulate about not putting that on the list And I'm not saying some missions office in central US somewhere. I'm talking about the persecuted church because they see what God is doing through the persecution and can't imagine it any other way. But they ask you to pray for them to be bold. Look on their threats, they prayed. They're big, they're scary. Remember, we imagined the the Pharisees whispering to Peter as he walked out that warning that was given, remember what we did to Jesus. I wouldn't speak of him much more if I were you. Well, that's pretty intimidating. Peter knows intimidation. He stood across the courtyard from Jesus, battered and bruised and denied him three times because he knew the threat that was there. It's a real threat scary, big threat. Look on their threats is their prayer. But since you are in control, make us bold. Their prayer is that their gospel boldness would rise to the level of the world's arrogant rebellion. God, look on their threats. See what they're doing, what they're saying the power they have to carry out their threats. It's big and scary. It's loud. It's aggressive. Look on their threats. But what is the rest of the prayer? Help us to continue to speak your truth boldly. May we rise up to the same level of passion and aggression, speaking for the hope that is in us. I read recently of the battle of David and Goliath. You might be on that Bible reading plan too, getting through 1 Samuel now. Goliath is huge. He's raging against what is true and right. He's intimidating. It tells us all the men of Israel trembled. Even Saul, head and shoulders above every Israelite. A warrior himself, trembling at the thought of this massive warrior defying them. And yet David says, in a sense, look on their threats. Giant of a man. Aggressive, violent, strong, threatening. Yet David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Where does the boldness come? Why could it say... Teenage shepherd boy David, when it got down to calling out the final battle here, he ran toward Goliath. That's the boldness these saints are praying for. Where does it come from? It comes from resting in the sovereignty of God. David said, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God who controls everything. If that God wants you to do what you said and feed me to the dogs, so be it. But I'm in his hands because he's the master. I'm the servant. So my boldness comes from who God is. They prayed, look on their threats and make our voice just as big, just as loud, just as bold. When the threat is big, we need, it. We need a God who is bigger so that we run with the message of truth. Number six, God's sovereignty is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Again, we should know this from Peter's preaching. He's referenced Christ's resurrection several times. (sighs) They are witnesses of a tomb that is empty. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That could be everywhere they went, but it could be rehearsing with those who are already new to be reminded of what God did on that Sunday morning. He brought life from death. He conquered death and the grave. The disciples wanted to rehearse the resurrection to remind all the believers who are struggling with boldness, God rules over everything, including death. His authority and power were confirmed when Jesus walked out of that grave. So the next time you find yourself thinking something like, I just don't know if I can be bold enough to speak up, ask yourself this question. Have I seen with the eye of faith the empty tomb? Because that empty tomb factors heavily into the argument of this first century church for why we should be bold. They continued sharing this testimony of the resurrection of Christ. It means something. At the memorial service, Jeremy read from 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen from the dead, this is all a bunch of nonsense. We're kidding ourselves. We are most miserable for living by all this stuff that means nothing because the one who taught it died and is left in a tomb like everyone else. But Paul transitions by saying, but Christ has been raised. And goes on to argue that that makes all the difference. And it must make the difference for our boldness. We will live out our Christian days never inviting people to church, never speaking of Christ making a difference, never saying, I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, we'll, we'll sing it here together in church, but we won't tell anyone out there. If our eye can't see that empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus sitting on the throne. Because that's what Peter did at Pentecost. All this talk of power and spirit means nothing if you don't see power and spirit bringing Christ out of that grave and taking him to sit at the right hand of his Father in heaven. The resurrection of Jesus makes a difference. Finally, see how God's sovereignty is revealed in the church's generosity at personal cost. Some would argue this paragraph kind of it should go with the next chapter, and, and it does. It sets the table for understanding what happens there. However, I think we should keep it lumped in here with this discourse on the sovereignty of God as the foundation for us being bold, because some of the witness of this early church was the love they had for one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. And that begins to unfold here in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 and 5. Now the full number, verse 32, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. We'll look more at that commonality, that sharing, We've talked about it once before. We'll talk about it next week, Lord willing. I just want us to see that when we rest in the sovereignty of God, the God who is able and willing by his own word to provide what we need, the God whose name is Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. If we believe that, then then generosity will flow from us. We will be willing to help take care of others' needs because we know someone has our back. Someone's taking care of our needs. The next chapter builds on this account. But here, just see what motivates this selling of property, selling of goods in order to help meet others' needs. When we believe God is in control and will give what we need, we will be free to be generous to others. Look at verse 33. It concludes with this unique phrase. Great grace was upon them all. It's hard to know exactly what this means. We already know the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, that they have power They're seeing signs and wonders, and now there's this added element of great grace is upon them. Well, just start with a simple understanding. They remembered they had been shown much favor from God. Why would they not show favor to others? If you believe God has done much for you, then be someone who does much for other people. It doesn't have to be measured financially because we don't always have the means to provide for everyone. But be a giver at heart and not a taker, a consumer. Are you a generous person? Or does your generosity kind of get cinched up out of fear that you might not have enough, that you'll lose out on something? Find the freedom here in, in just resting in the sovereignty of God to provide for you. And it, it, it will, it will free you to be a provider for others it seems that a big view of God will produce a big heart toward people that's what the text points to explore that this week and see if the giving of dollars or the giving of time, the giving of patience wouldn't be a true evidence that you're resting in the character of God the way he treats you you feel safe, you'll treat others and provide for them Yes, it's true. You as the church must be bold. Talking to the most timid person in the room, you must be bold. You must be bold to proclaim the name of Christ, to advance the kingdom. Your hope for boldness is rooted not in yourself, not in your resolve, but rather in your faith that our God is bigger. Bigger than problems, bigger than opposition, bigger than persecution, bigger than ideologies, bigger than false religions, bigger than the stubborn rebellion of the worst sinner you know, God is bigger. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And this early church prayed to the sovereign Lord in the face of threat and persecution, believing that God was bigger. So let our prayer echo the prayer of the church in Acts 4. May we say to the Lord, hear their threats. So when you watch the news or read the blogs this week and you hear everything that's going on, come back to Acts 4 and pray to the Lord. Lord, hear these threats. You know how loud our culture is. As it screams out for abortion. As it demands immorality and gender confusion, rejection of truth, and all forms of evil. Lord, hear their threats. And Lord, make us as loud about the hope and the peace and the freedom and the joy that is found in Jesus. Hear their threats. Make us bold. That's only going to happen if we have a really big view of the greatness of God. Heavenly Father, perhaps you would see fit to shake up our world like you shook this early church when they rested their faith clearly in who you are and what you've promised to do. Give us boldness like we've not experienced before. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.